you know who one of my favorite people on Twitter is? Is um, Greg Proops. Have you ever heard I, I of Greg Proops? I think I'm familiar with so, that particular Twitter personality. So um, Greg Proops used to be on Whose Line Is It Anyway? He was one of the improv comics on that show. Uh-huh. He did gags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. It's like they did props <laughs> and they would have like a big uh, tube-shaped furry thing. That sounds and, hilarious. And they would say, uh, do something with this tube-shaped furry thing. <laughs> That also has like a thing at the end, like what what could you possibly do with that tube shaped furry thing, you know? And then off the top of their heads, they would come up with a hilarious, spontaneous bit. I'm sure he has great politics, right? Well, uh, first of all, I I just want to show you everybody do a quick Google image search of Greg Proops because oh my god, these are the pictures of Greg Proops that show up on Google Image. Okay, look at this. Look at this picture of him with his glasses crooked. That's pretty irreverent. Yeah, like this is you know he, he's he's not a, fucking around. He's a he's a little weird. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna go to his tw- Twitter page and I just want you to look at his profile picture right now. <laughs> his profile picture is Kamala 2020 and it's a picture of Kamala Harris. Okay, that's the shot. But the chaser is you know how Twitter samples uh, you know the people's like media pictures in the top right corner. It's like a bunch of them are just pictures of Trump screaming. And I have no doubt that the captions are just like, here's our orange Cheeto president or something like that. You know, needless to say, he hates Bernie Sanders. And he doesn't even like Elizabeth Warren. What What is the pin tweet there? The pin tweet is just because of right now. And then the picture is a like an iron on patch. <laughs> and it says feminist as fuck. Oh, man. So that's at the top of his page. He loves Kamala Harris, you know. <laughs> what can I still, and, and still Hillary with her? and Hillary Clinton? Uh, that's a perfect thing because it's a reply to Cory Booker with a picture of Hillary Clinton. Yeah. See, when you introduced me to this guy, I thought it was going to turn out that he's like, you know, anytime you say, "Oh, do you know about this old comedian?" You know, from the you know, I don't know, '90s or mid 2000s they've usually gone to the right. Yeah, they're like yeah. A, an annoying, you know, free speech warrior. Hasn't political correctness gone too far? But this guy's the same thing in the opposite direction. Well, every time. I go on Twitter there's always this strange cognitive dissonance it feels a bit like I haven't actually seen Ready Player One but (laughs) as I understand it in the world of Ready Player One there are just all of these characters who are intermingling Mm -hmm. it's this big soup of characters (laughs) and you know I go on Twitter and it's like Oh, yeah, you know, Dennis Rodman is a diplomat in North Korea, and Greg Proops, the guy from Whose Line Is It Anyway, is a big Kamala guy, and, um, you know, it's like... it's like The, the horse whisperer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Hulk Hogan is making Gawker bankrupt. It's like, everything is just totally postmodern. Nothing is as it should be. Yeah, you know, Tom Arnold claims that he has tapes that are going to bring down Donald Trump. It's like, nothing, nothing makes sense. Nobody is in the container that they should be anymore. <laughs> well, folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm, as always, Luke Savage, and you are... Uh, I'm Will Sloan, uh-huh. as a matter of fact. Will and I have not seen each other for some time. I've been away in Britain. It was a fun and also a sad time. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But there was some breaking news that uh, happened. (laughs) We always like to be at the cutting edge of things, which is, of course, why we spend time watching documentaries that Christopher Hitchens made in the early 2000s about Texas and things like that. Uh, But we like to always be on the cutting edge and something broke that uh, we just had to uh, do right off the top while we were watching today's film. Well, if you're like me and like Judge Judy, you are probably very concerned about the current state of the Democratic primary. (laughs) A lot of the people who reflect our politics, Kamala Harris, 
Cory Booker. Oh, John Delaney. Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. Uh, Amy Klobuchar. A lot of sensible people have nevertheless not quite gained traction because there are certain other elements in the race. Well, there's too many people that are just sort of promising everyone free stuff. Yeah, and like telling a free them what, pony. Telling them what they want to hear. Yeah. So Judge Judy, who I alluded to earlier, friend of the show, <laughs> I'm reading a headline from the Daily Mail. She's got a way to fix the problem. Oh, uh, I'm so... Tell me what it is. The headline, and it's a long headline, as is usual in the Daily Mail. It says... It's being it's being uh, obscured. Will's having to scroll down because there's some kind of ad for uh, battleships or w- some... World of Warships, <laughs> yeah. it says. Sink the enemy. Uh-huh. Uh, Judge Judy tells Michael Bloomberg to run for president. Colon. Star says former New York mayor is, quote, only way we can begin to come together, unquote, as she slams Democrats, quote free money and blames sounds and fury of trump without naming him it's it's great because it's the daily mail they give you kind of exa- after a headline that's already like a whole paragraph they give you a bunch of uh, bullet points that are a sort of executive summary so you don't have to actually read the story i was being ironic earlier you know obviously on this show you know michael bloomberg was not actually my preferred candidate but the thing is i've seen a lot of judge judy over the years and something i know <laughs> is that She's right every single time. Uh-huh. She cuts to the bullshit. She is able to cross-examine so perfectly to the point where, you know, she she, al- she always gets to the right answer. Yeah, it's like the guy who may have dented uh, his former spouse's car. It turns out, actually, he wasn't telling the full story. And, I mean, why not here, too? <laughs> Maybe she's right. I'd like to see, you know what, I'd like to see Bernie Sanders in Judge Judy's courtroom. As he tries to explain to her how he's going to pay for all that. <laughs> And you know what she's going to say to him? She's going to say, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. (laughs) You know, the Michael Bloomberg stuff is so great. There was a bit of a flourish of it, I guess, I don't know, six or seven months ago when things were getting going and there was kind of another round of calls for Michael Bloomberg. And of course, there was Howard Schultz, uh, the short-lived Howard Schultz phenomenon. He kind of got bullied by left Twitter and by a bunch of people heckling him and by Centrist Bernie Sanders. Twitter even. Yeah, frankly. Bernie Sanders doing one interview and he's kind of like, oh, actually, uh, maybe this is a little difficult and it will require work and I'm, I'm not going to do this. But Mike Bloomberg, for I would say over 10 years, has kind of come up again and again. There's a certain style of think piece you might read in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post uh, or not read, but see mocked in a headline, a side-by-side pairing on Twitter. <laughs> You know, where it's like, could a Michael Bloomberg candidacy disrupt the two-party duopoly or something? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a wonderful genre. There was, maybe two years ago, they tried to do the same thing with Mark Zuckerberg, right? Right. Where it's like, uh, could a disruptive third-party figure break up the two-party <laughs> system or something? I'll tell you what needs to be broken up is fucking Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Wow, we got an Elizabeth Warren supporter over here, folks. <laughs> Will Sloan is radicalizing real time. He was all in for Klobuchar when we did our big episode a couple weeks ago. But this type of article, you know the kind I mean, where the conceit is somebody that's neither a Democrat or a Republican, but also is just thoroughly bland. But is a businessman. And is a businessman. And it's like, what if we just brought a business level disruption to the political system? And the subtext is always, what if we just did the thing that the leaderships in both parties have been doing for 30 years or more? Let's run America like a business. But we just did it with a slightly different branding. And it's so funny to me, 
the level of kind of elite dumbness and remove that it requires to actually i can't believe i can't imagine the person who actually writes that column and thinks it's sharp well because a lot of them saw donald trump hijack the republican party and they said oh okay well what people want is a businessman the thing that people are responding to in donald trump is that he's a businessman but they don't even realize that he wasn't even a real businessman <laughs> what if we got a real businessman in there they'll love him even more anyway uh you know long-standing mantra on the show is where judge duty leads we will follow so i think you know will has you know gone through several you know ideological transfigurations uh, over the course of the show in season one of course he was all in for for uh, Hillary Clinton, and then uh, briefly became a Bernie bro before going all in for Donald Trump because he thought that despite his flaws, at least he would maybe uh, stick it to the elites. And a few weeks ago, you know, he was all in for Klobuchar. Just minutes ago, he sounded like he was in for Elizabeth Warren. But uh, you know, Judge Judy has long been one of your guiding lights, and I guess <laughs> I guess the Michael and Us podcast is rebranding as uh, as a Bloomberg podcast. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. Well, actually, the person who I really want to run for president, both Oprah and myself, <laughs> wish that Bob Iger would jump in. I don't even know who that is. Bob Iger is the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Oh, okay. Yes, I do know who that is. I, I bring him up because... I just thought Mickey Mouse was the CEO. <laughs> so, okay, so I was just today reading a book of interviews with Walt Disney. Because I have Disney on the brain. Uh, like, if I apologize to anybody who follows me on Twitter, I realize that, like, I am becoming like a boomer Facebook guy, except with Disney. <laughs> and it's got so bad that I'm actually reading about the actual Walt Disney himself. And there's an interview from 1947 where the interviewer asked Walt Disney. So, so Mickey Mouse was, I guess, partly based on Charlie Chaplin. And they asked Walt Disney what Mickey Mouse's politics were. And all he said, he wouldn't say what they were, but he said they are not identical to Charlie Chaplin's. <laughs> and what that means is that... Mickey, he wasn't a... So Mickey Mouse is not a socialist. Mickey Mouse, in fact, is probably a McCarthyite. <laughs> <laughs> so think about that. You know who's probably not a McCarthyite is Bugs Bunny. What do you think Bugs's politics are? Probably uh, an anarchist. Actually, no, he's probably, you know what I think? I think Bugs is a libertarian because he just wants various hunters and uh, Yosemite Sams to stay off his property. He, he believes in, in private property rights. That's right. How do you think uh, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner fit into, you know, contemporary politics? I think, Wiley, I think the schism is there. I think Wiley Coyote is a success win guy because he's constantly <laughs> thinking that if he, you know, if he just, if he just follows the right program you know like if he if he invests in the like if he gets the right acme product he'll finally be able to catch the roadrunner and so wiley coyote is i think to that i would just add a friendly amendment which is i think wiley coyote is also an incel Oh, um, without know, a doubt. And and he's frustrated because the Roadrunner is like a chad. Like the Roadrunner just yeah. gets away with with everything without even without even trying. Yeah. Because the Roadrunner is just higher T. All yeah. of his inventions and he plays by the rules and it never works. Well, who is the coyote but Hillary Clinton? You know, somebody who Followed the rules, did it how you were supposed to do, and then what happens? Some some we're really, fucking asshole we're, comes we're along. We're really getting things entangled here. So the Wiley Coyote is an incel, but he's also Hillary Clinton, and he's a success wing guy. <laughs> and the Roadrunner is a Chad, but I guess is also Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, what's what's Daffy? 
<laughs> anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But so in, in addition to having Walt Disney on the brain, you had kind of six months of tweeting nonstop about Joker. Uh, maybe not six months, maybe three. Well, I was hardly alone in that. Uh-huh. You know? But you've also had, you've, you've been front and center in the whole kind of uh, Scorsese Marvel discourse, which I guess we talked about a little bit uh, on recent episodes. Well, you know, it, it bothers me a little bit because... <laughs> The Disney company, I really, I really do think, is just an evil, evil. horrible, horrible thing in every way. You know what you movie know? we should do? What that awful uh, Tom Hanks movie where he's Walt Disney? Oh, saving! I would love to do saving oh, Mr. Banks. I saw that in theaters. Wow, atrocious! Have wow. you seen it? No, I have not. In fact, I made a point of you were, not you were, supporting. You were a it. conscientious objector. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you know how I feel about Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. I think the man is a menace. <laughs> Um, and also, Tom Hanks, I looked it up, donated to Joe Biden. So that's all you needed to know. <laughs> there was a, a long article today by uh, Matt Zoller Seitz, who has uh, done some reportage about the fact that Disney is putting all of the Fox movies that they acquired into their legendary vaults. Like he sort of confirmed it. They're not letting them be shown in any for-profit theaters anymore because Disney is the company who is really on the leading edge of extending copyright protection for as long as possible for limiting access to its intellectual property yeah, the, for the, as much as possible. The famous Disney vault. Well, the Disney vault is incredible because they actually made a selling point out of the fact that you can't see their movies. You know what the Disney vault reminds me of is that thing where, was it Doritos that had the flavor that was like, we mashed all the flavors together by accident and we produced the special zany flavor, whatever they called yeah. it. It's like such an obvious marketing gimmick and yet people just kind of bought it. Well, do you remember that like, some, you know, when we were kids, 101 Dalmatians would come out for four months on video and then all the commercials would say, oh, but it's only out for a limited time before it goes back in the Disney vault. And I would watch those commercials and just think, well, of course it has to go back in the Disney vaults. I mean, it can't just be out forever. Right. So they've got your favorite like cartoon character telling you you have to you have to buy this and you're like, oh, uh, oh, here's Pongo or Snow White or like Bambi telling me I have to I have to buy this before it's going it to, you know, please, mom and dad, buy me this because they're going to put it back in the Disney vault. Yeah. And never stop to think that this company just can arbitrarily put things in that vault whenever it wants to. And let's be honest, it's not a vault. When we were kids when they have it in an ad, it's <laughs> Like, it was a vault that had a lock that it was has shaped a, like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, right. It has a big it has a big lock that looks like a wheel on an old ship or something. Yeah. You're like, oh, they're gonna put it there, and it's an actual, you know, piece of film. Like it's a film reel. They're gonna they're gonna stick down there. It's gonna be locked for the next generation. Gotta get it now. Yeah. Take me to Walmart. So the Disney company is very much at the forefront of making film and making our film heritage less accessible to us. Uh, limiting the ways that we can enjoy and appreciate it. I was uh, very interested by a tweet that a former guest of the show, John Semley, wrote today, where he shared this article by Matt Zoller Seitz, and he said, Honest question to film journos. How can you read this and even review a Disney Marvel movie in good conscience? Why do you do PR for one of the biggest, most evil companies on earth for $80 a review? We all have to sing for our supper, but Jesus. And then he says, work at a store, bartend, sell your blood on the dark web, <laughs> attempting to scam YouTube money, enthusing, hey guys, okay, so, rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> well, wow, okay, is if you love cinema at all, immoral, leave the industry, walk off the earth. 
No, now, I, th- I think he's got a good point there. Now, uh, John's tweet there, which of course I think the podcast, the house agrees 100% with that, segues into what we wanted to talk about next, which is uh, what for some is a sort of curmudgeonly posture to, towards the whole kind of Disney Marvel thing. Yeah. And the discourse around that, or the latest incarnation of it, definitely started when Martin Scorsese came out and said, you know, this isn't art, this is entertainment, come on. Right. Now, you were weighing in on this again recently because Scorsese, because Marty kind of kicked open the door. Yeah, (laughs) friend of the show, kicked open the door, and now, you know, Ken Loach uh, is saying the same thing. Yeah, Pedro Uh, Almodovar uh spoke, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, I believe, called the movies despicable. (laughs) I did. I hadn't heard that one. So that's on one end. And, uh-huh. and like the Avengers, uh, another team of auteurs has come together to defend Marvel. You've got <laughs> Judd Apatow. You've got Kevin Smith. You've got uh, jo- Joss Whedon. Is J- he waiting? James Gunn. You know, all the, all the shittiest, least <laughs> J. J. talented, Abrams. Yeah. you know, garbage filmmakers, <laughs> people with no style, no vision. <laughs> So I think what we're getting at here is that there's a pretty big chasm that's opened uh, open wide, and Will has been on uh, on one end of it. He's been a real partisan in this conflict, haven't you? Well, you know, the the point that John made on Twitter, where it's like, why do film journals even review these movies? I really think there's something to that because because so much of film coverage, so much of film criticism is and always has been dictated by studio PR. Mm-hmm. It's like the movie opens on Friday, so you got to review it on Friday. And also you want to get into the press screening and you want to interview the stars because the studio gives you access to those things. And if you if you stray too far, if you are too critical of the company, you may lose access. And I think... You know, in this day and age, who gives a shit about the access? Mm-hmm. I mean, these Disney movies, all of them, more than ever, are critic-proof. And also, more than ever, they're not things that are really worth reviewing, in my opinion. <laughs> and I just I just think like... Well, and if you do review them, I mean, you're, you're basically producing a sort of consumer affairs report. Yeah. Right? It's and, not a critical review. And, and by reviewing them, or at least reviewing them in the traditional fashion, you immediately dignify the assumption that they're worth reviewing. Uh-huh. And that they're worth taking on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And when you take... Something like, for example, the live-action Aladdin remake on its own terms, you've failed mm-hmm. right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've got to find a new way to approach these things. And I, I don't know, I often wonder, like, why do our alternative press review these things? Why does, for example, Now Magazine have a review of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, or whatever? Not exactly alt, is it? Yeah, it's like, it's like create, create something else. Why, like, why does something like Now Magazine do a review of not even that okay people care about star wars why do they have a review of i don't know what's an what's a stupid disney animated movie (laughs) on opening day like who cares like you're like you know it's something that nobody cares about no adult who is interested in alternative culture cares about yeah well and it's it's, like that real estate's taken up by the the major newspapers and stuff anyway yeah so so why not give the space to an indie filmmaker who might actually be pursuing something that's that's remotely interesting or Or, unique or if you're gonna cover that stuff radically uh, alter the way you cover it so i've had some crosswords to say against Tim Burton for uh, blowing it with a Dumbo movie and not involving Johnny Depp. I take them all back. This time he made the right decision. And so I tip my hat to you, Mr. Burton and Mr. Depp, and give it five bags of popcorn. Wow. 
So I think we've about, we've about put that to bed for now, although I'm sure we'll come back to it again. Um, we're going to get to the meat of today's episode, but of course we've just had an election in Canada, and I mean, I guess we won't get into it, uh, well, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this just yet, but... We've had enough downbeat post-election <laughs> episodes, I think. <laughs> well, I'm going to have, um, I'm gonna have a, a couple of pieces coming in the next, I think, few days, and so if people want to know in depth what I think about the election, they can read, read it in Jacobin and uh, somewhere else, I think. Um, but uh, there was a long comment from one uh, Matt on uh, the community page of the Patreon. And just to digress for a second, I think our Patreon is up to its highest point ever. So thanks again, as always, to everyone who's supporting us. And once again, as always, if you are being uh, foiled in your attempts to listen to us by Patreon and technical difficulties, please send us a direct message over Patreon. We will get things fixed uh, as soon as possible, because if you've been supporting us, we want to make sure that you can listen to all the episodes without any trouble. So I wanted to thank Matt for his comment here. He's, uh, he's left us with, with a lot of questions, and uh, I just wanted to kind of go over them in a sort of informal uh, mailbag section here. He says, I watched the Canadian results come in on the CBC last night. Canadian elections aren't covered in the U.S. media, obviously, apart from a token, mostly inaccurate NYT piece under the fold the day after the election. Nobody I talked to in the meat space yesterday even knew that Canada was having an election. As a Canadian who writes, you know, in other countries, I can definitely testify to that fact. People do not know at all what's going on here. He asked, why do CBC anchors act like they're on laughing gas? NPR and PBS trivialize important issues with their sophomore cutesy tone, but at least Jim Lear doesn't act like an election is some sort of comedy presentation. Um, I was at a count on election night, a rather depressing one, so I uh, (laughs) uh, confess I missed the coverage, although I did, um, or I saw it on TV, but it was in a crowded bar after, so I missed the sound. But I did listen to a pretty good episode of Canada Land Shortcuts this morning where they were talking about the... Uh, election coverage and uh, and how kind of poor it was. So I'm definitely in sympathy with that. I thought it was interesting that the CBC had on um, Gian Gameshi's lawyer as one of their panelists. Un- unreal. They, I mean, it's a company that pays respect to its history, you know, <laughs> and, and they keep things in the family. They, uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, this is not just a problem with the CBC. It's a problem with all network political coverage. They have these people on who are kind of, this, this is a longstanding beef I have with how this stuff is, pl- plays out on TV. They have these kind of pre- professional political operatives, these consultants on, and the result is that you talk about politics like a kind of trade show, like a sort of vocational thing. I mean, the the cliche complaint, right, is people talk in terms of the horse race. I think that's partly the problem, but I think the problem is actually a little deeper than that. It's that uh, everything just becomes a meta conversation. It's not about the substance of the issues at all. It's about what the narrative is going to be and and kind of a very parochial contestation of, of, of what that's going to be. Matt also asked, the broadcasters manage for six hours to avoid mentioning any issues that might have been significant in the race. It was only in the speeches by the NDP bloc and Green leaders that you started to get a sense of what the election might have been about. There were no conversations with voters or activists, as far as I can recall. So yeah, that's further to my point. That's exactly right. That is definitely not a problem unique to Canada, though. That is all cable coverage, uh, basically, uh, as I've seen it. He says, on the other hand, the amount of time dedicated to respectfully discussing the prospects for the NDP Greens block was something for which there is no analog in U.S. media. Even an ostensibly woke U.S. organization like Democracy Now! wouldn't dedicate more than three minutes a year to a party like the Greens, who won, I think, three seats in total. Um... Okay, uh, fair enough. We do have multi-party democracy in Canada, so that's partly uh, it's a parliamentary system where different parties win seats, more than two of them. So that's partly necessary. I wouldn't get too excited about the Canadian Greens. Uh, they're pretty incoherent and pretty irritating, but fair point. 
The broadcast was full of two infuriating cliches, people saying, frankly, I'm just glad the election's over, laughs. And what and what Canadians are showing today is that they want Parliament to get to work. I mean, I don't think um, we need to expound too much on why those things are stupid. I actually, I actually do agree that at the end of an election, we do want Parliament to get to work. Well, but it's just not, I mean, it's... We want Parliament to get to work, you know? <laughs> I mean, not in the sense it's intended by that. Luke, Luke, we want Parliament to get to work. Shut up. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, the kind of tone of sort of withered cynicism and sort of almost anti-politics through which we discuss politics in Canada has always irritated me, uh, too. So uh, I'm in agreement with that. There's some more comments here. People can read the the full thing. We just don't have time to read it all on the episode. But the final uh, point, Andrew Scheer seems like one of the most loathsome people that ever existed. People chose this guy to be the face of their party. Big undergraduate Federalist Society vibes from him. I love that during his speech, he seemed to be simultaneously suppressing a panic attack and viciously insulting the winning candidates. Oh, geez, I regret voting for him now. (laughs) Yeah, Will Will supports sort of centrist Democrats in the states, but he's a hardened conservative here in Canada. Uh, <laughs> One more thing I want to say about the election is that that bastard Ed the Sock, you know, we will never be rid of this fucking Sock. You know, this Sock has been an ambient presence in the Canadian media ever since I, I, ever since I can remember. Ever since the days of those wet t-shirt competitions he used to preside over yeah. from, from you know, that were in Florida or something. He was sort of like Canada's Howard Stern, but a Sock. And he has successfully reinvented himself on Twitter recently as sort of a centrist, center-right pundit. And in fact, Now Magazine, I hate to call them out again, Now Do Better, uh, now Magazine had an article during this election cycle called How Did Ed the Sock Become the Voice for Sensible Conservatism? But isn't he kind of also like a woke lib? Well, he's a big uh, Justin Trudeau guy, but, right. but he's a big Justin Trudeau guy because the Conservative Party has failed. Uh, they've, they've lost their way. The man yeah. behind Ed the Sock, believe it or not, he's not actually a sentient sock. Oh. There, there is a puppeteer there. God, uh, never have heroes. He ran for the Conservatives, <laughs> I think, 30 years ago in either provincially or federally. I'm not sure. Um, but... Uh, Not in character, I assume. Yeah, but anyway, the CBC <laughs> had him on as a commentator, too. I think he was on uh, the This Hour Has 22 Minutes show. Really? Doing doing comedy. And, I mean, you know, just days before, he was going off about how the term settler is offensive. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the kind of country we're dealing with up here. I mean, a lot of you people probably think this is a great country, but and and maybe it is in certain ways. I mean, I choose to live here. But I think we could be doing a lot. Any country that can produce and sustain Ed the Sock and people just accept it for so long, I I really think we have to do better. (laughs) Did you uh, vote your conscience or did you vote Andrew Scheer? Conscience. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Who do you think has the longer beard today? Jagmeet Singh or Doug Fords after the conservatives finally pulled them out of the cell? They've held them in for five weeks. Oh, my God. That's a good question. So I just want to say one final word on the election. Uh, as I said, if people want to kind of know my thoughts in detail, they can they can read pieces I have coming out in the next few days. But the one thing I would say, removed from the NDP result, which was, of course, the one that I was most invested in, that the key thing to understand about the Canadian election is that there has never been another federal election in history in which both the Tories and Liberals have done so badly. There has never been a prime minister like Justin Trudeau who will be going into a minority government with such a razor-thin popular mandate, just over 33%. He actually lost it to Andrew Scheer. 
Um, the popular vote. He lost is. the popular vote. He has more seats because of our electoral system. And so everybody kind of lost. And I think it's been my admittedly anecdotal observation that over the past few days, over the past week, most commentators in the press don't seem to have really grappled with how weird this is. It's being processed as a kind of nominal return to the status quo. And I really don't think that's the case. I think there's every chance we're going to be back to an election in under two years, possibly in under a year and possibly less than that. Well, we'll be taking a shagadelic turn uh, across the Atlantic for the next portion of this episode because Luke uh, was in jolly old England last week and the week before. I guess I'll just start by asking how your trip was. Did you go to Big Ben? I uh, I definitely passed Big Ben, although it's under construction, so it looks uh, it looks pretty atrocious right now. Did uh, you see the changing of the guards? I uh, I did not. I didn't actually go by Buckingham Palace, though I was near it almost every day. I think I'm sort of old enough that I don't have to go and look at Buckingham Palace. I've been to Britain enough times; so I don't have to bother. <laughs> it was a bit of a, a bit of an incongruous trip because the first part of it, I was actually my my grandfather died a few weeks ago. And so I was out in the West Country in Somerset specifically saying goodbye to him with the whole family. And uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a lovely man. I'll miss him tremendously. A very talented musician, first a, a concert violinist and then later a, a musical scholar. I'm very grateful because he, he left a, uh, an autobiography or a sort of autobiographical account of his own father, who was a doctor in Southwest China, you know, before the war. And so my grandfather's actually born in Yunnan province. And my parent, grandparents later lived in, in Hong Kong because uh, grandpa was, uh, I guess, director of a, of a musical academy there. So I actually grew up with a lot of kind of, uh, you know, Chinese calligraphy and things like that uh, mm. in the house. That's always been a kind of a part of the kind of uh, weird mise-en-scene that is my family, I mm. guess. But I, I decided to uh, stay a little longer than, um, you know, my dad and my brother who were with me. And, and I spent some time in London as well. Um, and I, I really wanted to meet up with, you know, some of uh, the people I've come to know, the sort of uh, Labour Party activists and, and left media people over there. I did uh, the, the Trash Future podcast, which people can listen to. We'll, we'll link to it. Um, I did an episode of Tisky Sour, which is a program of Navarra Media. If people aren't familiar with Navarra, uh, they should really check it out. It's one of my favorite kind of alternative media projects, I think, anywhere in the world today. Really, really good. You know, I would say my admiration for the left project over there, you know, definitely was, which was already, I already held it in pretty high esteem, has, has kind of only increased. I, I really think... Um, they're doing some pretty amazing stuff over there and that they have a lot to kind of teach us here in Canada, but also, uh, you know, the American left uh, as well. So I had a really nice time uh, just walking around London and, and hanging out with people. And uh, because I had Britain on the brain after this trip, I sort of bullied Will into doing uh, another one of these British episodes, which of course are very peculiar to me because I have this uh, kind of attachment to the place, which is both kind of political and also personal. And uh, I've had this, uh, the film we did uh, on my mind for a while, which is this film, Heath Wilson, The Ten Year Duel. For 10 tumultuous years, from 1965 to 1975, two men fought the heavyweight duel of 20th century British politics. One was the Labour leader and Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution. The other was the Conservative leader and Prime Minister, Edward Heath. Away with all the short-term gimmickry and instant government which we've had for the last few years. Heath and Wilson governed in an era of huge upheaval. 
the swinging 60s and turbulent 70s. On their watch, Britain changed irreversibly and became a nation-state within Europe. The future is yours! But it also hit economic and industrial chaos. Mr Heath has given the militants the charter they always dreamed of. And in these episodes, you know, I'm kind of like Michael Rappaport when Eli Lake comes on. You know, I'm like, so, 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 Eli, break it, break it down, break down politics for me. Like, what, what, what's Parliament, and how does it work? <laughs> yeah, is he, I mean, Will is more of that kind of commentator, and I'm one of those people who's, you know, kind of, you know, into knowing who the Prime Minister is and <laughs> shit like that. Um, so, I do also know who two former Prime Ministers are. They were Harold Wilson of the Labour Party and Edward Heath of the Tory party, uh, conservative party, you might even say. <laughs> you do know who the prime minister is, don't you? Um. And, you know, these two, they had a, uh, a Valjean-Javert-type <laughs> relationship for over 10 years. You know, they were uh, bitter enemies, but in some ways more alike <laughs> than even they would have admitted. Will's, now, Will's joking, but actually his, uh, his ironic recapitulation of the film is the exact reason I wanted to do it. It's because we've seen so many movies like this. You know, it's like Best of Enemies, right? right it's like, you exactly. know, the two guys who are the opposite poles, but who are actually uh-huh. the same and who could only survive with each other. Right, you know? and, and this film very much has that sort of Time magazine quality where it's giving you the official kind of trademarked narrative of the time. And it's telling you about all these very interesting and complex political events in a way that is almost entirely devoid of real political analysis, (laughs) which I absolutely love. So the basic conceit of the film is um, Harold Wilson, Labour Prime Minister from 1964 until 1970, and again from 1974 until 1976 when he resigned rather suddenly, and uh, Edward Heath, Tory Prime Minister from 1970 to 74. Their rivalry, I guess, was at the forefront of British political and parliamentary debate in the 60s and 70s. This was the era that most people will know for kind of images of, of strikes, but also the iconography of Cool Britannia, which we talked about in, I guess, our, what was it, a bonus episode? Yeah. The Austin Powers one. Uh, p- uh, perhaps you've heard of a band called The Beatles that came <laughs> along and shocked Britain out of its old fuddy-duddy ways. <laughs> so, yeah, right. So that's the kind of storytelling we're dealing with here. And the basic conceit of the film is that even though Harold Wilson, you know, he won most of the elections. He won in uh, 64, 66. He uh, won two elections in 1974 as well. Edward Heath only won one in 1970, um, kind of pulling it out of the fire and defeating Wilson, who was widely expected to win. Even though Wilson kind of uh, had more notches on his belt, the implication is that, you know, Heath kind of heralded the future because he attempted a version of Thatcherism, which kind of failed. Um, He did what was necessary, but it was kind of ahead of his own time. And could you explain exactly what that vision looked like and why it didn't entirely work when he did it? So, I mean, this is the other reason I find the film interesting, because it's a fascinating portrait in spite of its obvious uh, flaws and, and kind of omissions of Britain in the 60s and 70s. Harold Wilson, you know, is obviously the figure I find much more sympathetic of the two, and not just because he had a sense of humor and was kind of at least superficially cool, and Edward Heath is like about as interesting as watching paint dry. And this is cool by sort of like 1960s British politico standards. Yeah, well, I mean, he was at, at a time when, you know, Britain was producing a lot of interesting popular culture and music and things. You know, this was a working class guy uh, who smoked a pipe, and this was very unusual for, for Britain at the time. You can see why Tony 
Tony Blair was such a breath of fresh air when he came along. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the typical British prime minister, you know, I guess Clement Attlee notwithstanding was sort of a, was like a Tory toff, privately educated from a very narrow set of class backgrounds. And so Harold Wilson in that context was very much a breath of fresh air. I find Harold Wilson more sympathetic, obviously, because he was the labor, he's the labor politician featured in the film and not the uh, the shitty Tory one. But it's important to emphasize that Harold Wilson was kind of in the center of the British Labour Party at the time. You know, he was a radical figure to the Tories, and he was a radical figure, you know, we'll have to do this in a kind of future episode, but uh, he was considered a radical figure by parts of the British establishment in the deep state. There was actually an aborted coup attempt, sort of British Watergate that never happened, was these two journalists visiting Wilson after he retired, and him basically revealing to them... Uh, the details of this plot to basically uh, roll tanks in front of Downing mm. Street and remove the Labour government from office. Uh, we'll have to talk about that on a future occasion. <laughs> but Wilson was a kind of a hack in a way, but from a time when hackery defaulted to the social democratic left, which is what's interesting. <laughs> he identifies as a socialist. Well, it's the Labour Party. Yeah. Of course yeah, he yeah. does. And he's a he's a working class uh, Labour politician. So of course he identifies as a socialist. This was the norm uh, for the time. Now, when, when there's an economic crisis or, you know, economic turmoil of any kind, the entire political class defaults to austerity in Britain and, and around the world. And the big reason for that is because the power of organized labor has been so diminished. The power of ordinary people as workers has been so diminished. But in the 60s and 70s, uh, the labor movement in Britain was so strong that in a time of economic crisis, the political pressures basically defaulted towards give the unions what they want, give the workers what they want. They're a power block that we have to deal with. And so Edward Heath, after he formed government in 1970, basically was like, we're going to take on the unions. And he completely failed in that task. The multiple unions went on strike. There were solidarity strikes. In 1974, he called another general election on the slogan, who governs Britain? And the Labour Party ended up winning two general elections that year. So one should not be too nostalgic <laughs> for this time, but it's important just as a historical moment to emphasize that uh, there was a time when, you know, the working class was powerful enough at a G7 country that it could bring a Tory government to its knees. Now, I got to say, when a lot of people think of Britain in the 70s, they don't think of it in such rosy terms. They think of it as this time when these goddamn unions were crippling the country and we needed a strong leader like Thatcher to come in. Mm. I, in fact, I may even say that this seems to be at least the media consensus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that's a testament to the triumph of Thatcherism that we that that's how the kind of official narrative thinks of this time now i'm a union man amazed at what i am i say what i think that the company stinks yes i'm a union man when but so the other thing about this film i would say it has probably the best soundtrack of any film we've ever watched on this podcast Although it's a, I think it's one that clashes somewhat with the themes it's trying to engage with. So it's almost all music from the British invasion. You got the Kinks. You got uh, these kind of one-hit wonders like Thunderclap, Newman. Uh, you got the Straubs, part of the Union. Songs like this. I think there's some American music uh, David too. David Bowie's. David in there. Bowie's in it. I think the Velvet Underground uh, appears at one point. Uh, the Rolling Stones. Things like that. It's a terrific soundtrack. The soundtrack provides kind of the mise en scène for 
uh, what's going on in British culture at the time, which is this, uh, and I hate to sound like a narrator in the film, but I'm going to for a second, <laughs> this time of really tremendous change after the war, when Britain as a society is grappling with its very strange new identity. It's no longer a global superpower. It's playing second fiddle to the United States, but it still has kind of the residual air of cultural uh, importance uh, that befits a former empire. So Harold Wilson, you know, keeps Britain, formally anyway, out of the Vietnam War. There are kind of these great moments of pride for Britain, uh, you know, like the Beatles doing so well in the United States, going on Ed Sullivan. Britain wins the World Cup during Harold Wilson's time in office. But then there are these things which, you know, uh, the film presents as these great crises for the British identity. And I suppose in a, in a felt sense, they were for many people, particularly for Britain's kind of uh, Tory establishment. So you had uh, inflation, you had the devaluation of the pound, which was kind of one of the big economic crises that preoccupies uh, this time and, and, and is central in the film. Pound, of course, is a reserve currency, and, and so it's used abroad, and the de devaluation of the pound was considered a kind of big loss of national honor. I think it was the day after uh, Britain won the World Cup, the Labour government actually closed the colonial office. Mm. So the film presents this, or at least the kind of, um, you know, stolid Tory figures that are kind of narrating parts of the film, you know, these kind of old war horses from conservatism in the 1670s, they talk about this like this is this great disgrace. And that Labour was kind of managing decline, basically. And that Ted Heath, he didn't want to settle for that. So that's the basic conceit of the movie. And Another reason I wanted to watch it is because while I was in Britain, I found myself listening a lot to uh, The Kinks. band I have a very complex relationship to. We might have to spend a whole other episode on this because it bleeds into the conversation, uh, or part of the conversation we had on our shock of the new episode about modern art, and conversations that I feel like we're always having on this podcast about progressive versus reactionary art, and does art uh, need to have a good message, and I mean, does it uh, need yeah, to be didactic? I think uh, you and I both have certain artists and artworks that we would regard as politically problematic <laughs> that we nevertheless love. Absolutely. So I've listened a lot uh, in recent weeks to a Kinks album called Muswell Hillbillies. Uh -huh. Now, the Kinks uh, are the quintessential Brit rock band, and they ended up being a huge act in America in the 1980s. They were successful everywhere. But, I mean, apart from maybe the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, there's nothing that radiates the spirit and the kind of sound of, you know, 60s Cool Britannia better than the Kinks. So much so that it's very easy not to listen to the lyrics on an album like Muswell Hillbillies <laughs> and realize that a lot of it is very proto-Thatcherite. There's another album they had a, a, around the same time that's called, I'm going to butcher the title, but it's called like something like Arthur and the Decline of the British Empire. There's a song that probably a lot of people have heard and never noticed the, the what it's about at all called Victoria. Do you know this song? No. It's, it's just a song about Queen Victoria, but it, I don't... I, well, I, I think a lot of people don't really think about what Queen Victoria means. She's kind of an empty signifier. Well, that's you know? true, but mm -hmm. if you listen to the lyrics, it's not, just, uh, it's not just her being kind of invoked. There's a lot of baggage, and it's pretty uh -huh. explicit. And in, in, on the Muswell Hillbillies album, I mean, the very first song, which is called 20th Century Man has a bridge that's basically a condemnation of the welfare state. And it's all about how, you know, 
uh, bureaucrats and civil servants are running our lives and things like that. It's it's a it is a, it is a great piece of react. It's a and it's a total banger of a song. It's a great piece of reactionary art. I want to ask you about that kink song about tea. Oh yeah. Okay. So I'm obsessed with this song. We'll we'll drop in by the way of a few clips here of these of these tunes. Uh, we probably can't put in the whole songs because I don't want to get sued by the estate of Ray Davies for this one. But have a cup of tea has been on my mind for a few weeks. Not just because I love the song. I think it's great. But because it's a song about something absolutely trivial and ridiculously twee. I mean, imagine doing a rock song about having a cup of tea. Mm. Only Britain in the in the 60s and 70s could produce something like that. But the song has a message that can only be called political. And I think it's very interesting. I've been endlessly thinking about this and trying to deconstruct it for the past couple weeks uh, since I revisited the song while I was in Britain. Whatever the situation Whatever the race or creed So you have you have tea, the centerpiece of the song, and many of the verses are about, you know, tea's a cure for everything, it's a stimulant, you know, it'll put you to sleep, it'll cure, you know, tonsillitis, it'll do anything. And then the final verse, I just want to read here, whatever the situation, whatever the race or creed, tea knows no segregation, no class nor pedigree, it knows no motivation, no, no sect nor organization, it knows no religion nor political belief. Um, and then the bridge reads, tea in the morning, tea in the evening, tea at supper time. You get tea when it's raining, tea when it's snowing, tea when the weather's fine. I want to come back to the, the final verse there about tea knowing no, uh, no segregation or class or sect or whatever. But the bridge where, he, where uh, I think it's Ray Davies sings tea in the morning, tea in the evening, tea at supper time. The chord changes there are borrowed straight out of kind of American R&B at the time. <laughs> so this is a, a song which is... Uh, you know, draped in kind of the iconography of British imperialism, right? Tea, where does that come from? Well, uh, a lot of tea came It comes from, from Britain. <laughs> That's right. It comes it, from, I think, the Queen's uh, own palace. It comes from the part of Britain that was in South Asia. That's right. Um, but here is tea being used as this symbol of kind of a universal cosmopolitan identity. But enabled why? Because of 19th century British imperialism. That's only why this post-war band is able to see it in those terms. And to add to the layers of complexity... The chord changes in the song are very American, and not just American, but they come from an American musical form, which is from an American musical form, which was invented by black musicians in the Deep South. So parse the layers of the so-called special relationship, the British and American cultural relationship, two centuries of first British and then American imperialism going on in this ridiculous, stupid as hell song about tea, which is also a banger. I mean, it's just so beautiful. It's like, this is the exchange of ideas, the exchange of cultures. It's like, this is the melting pot that we all aspire to, you know? Now, in 1970, Heath won the election, and you have a personal story about it, because believe it or not, your roots are not entirely in the Labour Party. (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, you know, I hate to do a purity test on you here, but is it possible you have a little bit of Tory blood running in your veins? It's always hard to it's always hard to tell, uh, you know, going back several generations, what exactly your your family's politics were. But I do have uh, this particular memory passed on to me uh, through my dad. He would have been about, I think, eight or nine, maybe ten years old in 1970. And I guess, as I understand it, the labor platform in 1970 called for the abolition of either grammar schools or perhaps all private education. Sounds good to me. (laughs) And I guess my grandparents were not too happy about this fact. So I guess the family was sort of defaulting towards the conservatives at this time, and and, uh, labor was widely expected to win. And my dad uh, told me he remembers coming downstairs, I guess, around, you know, midnight or 1 a.m. And uh, my grandmother said there's been a huge swing to the conservatives. And he said at 10 years old, I felt this, you know, this wave of relief kind of wash over me. So, of course, I thought about that when I was watching the film. The film, by the way, omits a crucial detail of the 1970 election, which is that one of the big turning points in it was the fact that Enoch Powell, who'd been Tory, I believe, health minister, had kind of pioneered this nativist discourse and that both the major parties were sort of operating to some degree within it, and it ultimately helped the Conservative Party. We'll talk about it in another episode, but Tony Benn, who was a, ca- a Labour cabinet minister at the time, was one of the only British politicians with the guts to openly confront Powell's racism, and Harold Wilson, I think, later blamed him for costing you know hundreds of seats for Labour or thousands of votes or, or something <laughs> like that. It's in Ben's diaries. Something else that runs through it is a narrative that I think we talked about in that rather ridiculous Austin Powers bonus episode we had. This kind of keep calm and carry on spirit, as it's widely known, which is sort of Britain's version of I love New York or something like that. We talked about a great book by uh, the British writer and Tribune editor Owen Hatterley called The Ministry of Nostalgia. This is one of the best books I've read in the past couple of years. And it's about how these kind of narratives from Britain's past... Dunkirk being one, right? Uh, This comes up in the film, The Spirit of Dunkirk. This is what Heath was uh, ostensibly appealing to when he was uh, mobilizing uh, the general public against the unions. This kind of uh, spirit of austerity and pulling together, uh, as, you know, as happened during the, the war, which was later used, you know, the keep calm and carry on thing that people think about uh, so much. That was actually, in modern terms at least, an invention of kind of Tory, modern Tory austerity. It was a kind of old regal iconography pulled from the depths of memory, people's memories of rationing and things like that. A common struggle that had been against the Nazis and for a good cause, uh, but which persistently in subsequent decades has kind of been invoked to justify working in middle class belt tightening, Mm. horrific regimes of cuts, tax on uh, the labor movement and things like that. This runs through this film as well. This master narrative, which, as you said, is so hegemonic now that, you know, the 70s might have been tough, but it was necessary. And a politician like Edward Heath, he was ahead of his own time, but he preceded Margaret Thatcher, who did the tough but necessary things. Thatcher as well, of course, mobilized that narrative to great effect as well. But on this point, I just wanted to share one final anecdote from my trip to Britain. I wasn't actually able to stay in London. Um, I was staying outside of London with my family, so I had to take the train into town every day. It was about, a, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes journey every day each way. And it wasn't under Thatcher, it was under her successor, John Major, that the Tory government privatized British Rail. And the rail system in Britain is one of probably the worst in the developed world <laughs> as a result of this privatization. It is a textbook study for why the privatization mania of the Thatcher era that Edward Heath would have done if he'd have been allowed 
why it is an absolute disaster. You have different bits of the rail line, the infrastructure owned by different private companies that are competing. None of them are profitable, but people need, or many of them are not profitable, but people need rail service. So what happens? Well, the state has to bail them out. <laughs> the service is terrible. There are no integrated schedules. Um, because these companies are in competition. Why would they provide integrated schedules? Uh, it is way overpriced. And uh, anyone who thinks that post-war social democracy was drab and that you can do away with uh, publicly owned goods and the welfare state, take a train in Britain and see if you still think that. This record is to help you speak fluent Heath for business purposes, for social reasons, or simply for pleasure. Before the next lesson, we want you to make up a sentence in Heath using the following words and phrases. Our imperial heritage, a strong Britain, fed to the teeth with this humbug, argy-bargy. Do you think you can do that? Yes, we're going to have a try. A few nights ago, I was watching a documentary on Netflix, which I've already seen seven or eight times. It's a documentary about Monty Python, and it's called The Meaning of Live. And it was a behind-the-scenes, fly-on-the-wall documentary about when they did their big reunion show at the O2 in 2014. You know, this is one of my most watched movies of the decade because I swear twice a year I just want to, like, be with the boys again. You know, I just want to hang out with them. And I find it such an emotional experience because, you know, I, I, I love them so much. I love them all so deeply. And, and, I mean, I love seeing them together again. And yet, when you're in your 70s and you're doing, you know, the sketches that you wrote... 40 years ago and you know you were once on the cutting edge but now you're legends like you suck you know you're, you're really lame and and you know it's I have such a complicated mix of emotions when I watch it it's like you know there they are there's Eric Idle and there's Michael Palin and they're on the stage and they're doing the camp judges again you know very, <laughs> camp judges all right you know this was very cutting edge stuff back in 1969 but now it's a little bit you know, it's a little bit sad and it's frankly a little bit regressive. <laughs> you know, we're 25, 30 years away from the one gay member of the group dying mm -hmm. and they're still doing camp judges. Mm -hmm. We also live in an age where you can see all these guys on Twitter now. John Cleese is always talking about how much he hates political correctness. And, you know, <laughs> he's he's moved away from uh, London and he's living in the Caribbean, but... <laughs> Now he's talking about how there's too much immigration in London. <laughs> uh, Eric Idle is always retweeting Nira Tandon. And, oh, you know, he, that one hurts, man. I, I know, and he doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> but, but look, it's fine. He wrote Nudge Nudge. He gets to go to heaven forever. <laughs> you know, Terry Gilliam, he's always out there making jokes about trans people and saying bad things about Me Too. It's like, it, it's hard, you know? Yeah. I, I'm not really crescendoing to any point. <laughs> it's just that, like, it's hard to watch people who are once on the cutting edge become kind of dated. So I'm not sure if this is crescendoing to any point either, but I wanted to send us off today with something maybe a little disjointed, but I think germane to the episode. And this is an entry from Tony Benn's diaries, the late British politician Tony Benn. There's an entry in his diaries from June 1965. This is when Benn was a junior cabinet minister in Harold Wilson's government, minister for the post office, in fact. And he's talking about the circumstances surrounding an event that we witnessed in the film, which is Harold Wilson bestowing, uh, I think, is the order of the British Empire on the Beatles. And this has been in the early 60s, uh, or in the mid-60s, before he was a radical figure, but nonetheless a very uh, thoughtful and introspective one, uh, writing in his diaries privately at the time. 
At the moment, we are all feeling rather grim about the appalling concentration upon British achievement. There is an orgy of commemoration including Magna Carta, the Simone de Manafort Parliament, Waterloo, the First World War, the Second World War, Dunkirk, and so on. All of these are turned into royal occasions and thus strengthen the basically reactionary influence the monarchy has over national life. I read yesterday morning that the Beatles have been given MBEs. No doubt Harold did this to be popular, and I expect it was popular, though it may have been unpopular with some people too. The Daily Mirror's headline was, now they've got into the topmost chart of all. But the plain truth is that the Beatles have done more for the royal family by accepting MBEs than the royal family have done for the Beatles by giving them. Nobody goes to see the Beatles because they've got MBEs, but the royal family love the idea that the honors list is popular because it helps to buttress them and indirectly their influence is used to strengthen all the forces of conservatism in society. I think Harold Wilson makes the most appalling mistake if he thinks that in this way he can buy popularity, for he is ultimately bolstering a force that is an enemy of his political stand. The other thing this week that's in my mind is the developing situation in Vietnam, where the Americans are now deciding to invade in full strength and we're left in the embarrassing position of appearing to support them. I believe this is an untenable position and sooner or later we shall have to come out and say what we really think. The argument that we are keeping quiet in order to retain influence is of course fallacious. The real reason is quite different. On Friday night, there was the first teach-in at the LSE in London on Vietnam. It was based on the teach-ins that have appeared in the United States and which are an aspect of the nonviolent movement. I think they probably will have an influence, and I'm told that whenever Harold Wilson's name was mentioned at LSE, people booed. It may well be that when the time comes, the Labour government will have been held to fail, not because it was too radical, but because it was not radical enough. Now watch this drive. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter much, doesn't matter much to you.